All right. We have the kids with us again because this is one of our family Sundays. We don't have the little littles with us, but we do have the other kids with us. We're a smaller group today because uh, many people are either traveling for Thanksgiving or also the road conditions. I know that some people ended up deciding to stay home. Kids, before we get into the story of our message today, I want to start with another story that goes further back, but that's connected to the story that we're going to be on in this week. One of the things that John has been doing in the Gospel of John, because that's the series we're going through, John has been going back and showing connections with Jesus' story and what happened with the Israelites in the Old Testament. Now, one of the biggest stories that happens with Israel is when they leave captivity out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt, and God rescued them out of their slavery, and they went into the desert or into the wilderness. Now, were they there for just a little bit of time, kids? No, they were there for a long time. They were there longer than most of your parents have been alive. Not all of your parents, but some of your parents. They were there for a long time, for 40 years. Now, while they were walking in the desert, there is something that is incredibly valuable everywhere, but specifically in the wilderness, there's something that's really, really valuable. Kids, what do you think is very valuable in the desert. Hmm, what do you think? I wish I had an illustration here to help with this. What is really valuable in the desert? Water. Water, right. Water is so valuable. Now, water is valuable everywhere. Do you guys know why water is so valuable? Because there is no life without water. When we, some of you might have watched a couple years ago, I think it was 2020, I, I'm, Ali Manwarren would know for sure, but when SpaceX got sent out, 2020, right, I think? Yeah, I know she was watching it, had the whole countdown, but you watch that, and, and when people, we have sent different probes to go different places, if we've uh, sent things all the way to go to Mars, do you know what they always look for? either on the moon or on Mars or different places, they look for water. The reason they want to look for water is because if they can't find water, they're not going to find life. But what happens with the Israelites is while they are in the desert, they come to a place with no water, and they start complaining. Now, God has done all of these things for them, but they complain and complain. And do you know why they're complaining? Because they're thirsty. How many of you have ever been really, really, really thirsty? You've been really, really thirsty? These people are way more thirsty because they have been walking in the hot sun. They're tired. They're carrying all of their things with them. They're moving, and they have no water. But do you know what God does? God gives them water. And he does it through this amazing thing. He tells Moses to take the staff that God gave him, and he tells him to go and strike the rock. Moses does that, and do you know what comes out of the water? Water. 
This is in Exodus 17, verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the, wa- the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. God gave a huge blessing to the people of Israel. He allowed them to have life because he gave them water. But the end of the passage in verse, seven, uh, in verse 7, it says this, that the people tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? They were questioning when they didn't have water Is the Lord among us? Is God here? In the passage that we're in, in John 7, the people are asking the same question. Is the Lord among us or not? The question they are asking is, who is this Jesus? All of them, as we saw last week, and kids, you weren't here last week with us in here, but last week we saw that people are divided. They're asking, oh, maybe this is Jesus, and they're saying that they, this is what they think. Other people are saying, no, he's someone else. They're asking, who is this Jesus? What we're going to see, though, is that Jesus is the one that they need to have life. Because as much as you cannot have life Without water, you cannot have life without Christ. So that's what we're going to see this morning. Here's our big idea. Seek Jesus as your Savior, for only the Spirit will satisfy your thirst. Seek Jesus as your Savior, for only the Spirit will satisfy your thirst. Kids, while we're doing this first portion, here's what I want you to draw on the inside of your bulletin. I want you to draw people looking for Jesus, but not being able to find him. Last week, what we saw is that people are seeking in many different ways for Jesus, but they have not been able to find the Savior We saw last week that worldly judgment leads to error and death, but godly judgment leads to truth and life. The the section we're going to be in today, which is uh, John 7, 32 through 52, serves as the second part of last week's message. Why couldn't people understand who Jesus was? Because they were using worldly judgment. They were looking with a worldly mission. This is what God has to do. They were using worldly knowledge. They were using worldly assumptions. They were judging him with worldly morality and worldly religion. All of these things, though, lead to error and death. They do not reveal the truth. They do not reveal the Savior. They do not give truth. So we're going to jump into our passage now. And Jesus is going to start explaining to them the reality that they cannot find him. Jesus is going to first give a prophetic word. Let's look at verse 32 through 34. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, 
and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me, for where I am, you cannot come. The Pharisees heard the words that Jesus, that they were muttering about Jesus, which if you look back in verse 30 and 31 of chapter 7, just going back a little bit, it says in verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid on a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So the, the Pharisees, the priests, are hearing people muttering all of these things. Now, they're not muttering in a loud voice. They're saying it quietly because we saw earlier in last chapter that the people did not speak out for fear of the Jews. But they hear them, and they send officers to arrest him. But Jesus then says, You I will uh, be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Throughout this passage, one of the words that's been repeated over and over is the word seek. The people are all seeking for Jesus. In verse 1, it says that they are, um, that he would not go, that Jesus would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Uh, in verse 11, it says the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Verse 25, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him. And then here in our verse 32, they sent officers to arrest him. All of them are seeking for Jesus, but Jesus says, you will not find me. Why can't they find Jesus? Now, we need to understand that when Jesus is talking, this happens so often throughout the Gospel of John, that Jesus is talking on one level, and people are hearing him on a completely different level. When Jesus is talking about, you will not find me, he's already told me, I am going back to the one who sent me. What is he talking about? I am going back to the Father. You will seek me as they already are seeking him, but you will not find me. Jesus is talking about a spiritual reality. It's the same truth that he told Nicodemus back in John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered him, Nicodemus, Truly, I, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. All these people are looking for him, but they cannot see him. Let me me illustrate this, because when we think about, well, why can't they find him? The, The reason they can't find him is because they're looking for the entirely wrong person. They have the right name, okay? They're looking for the Christ. They're looking for the Messiah, but their description of that is totally wrong. So, so for example, let's say we were, if none of you knew Pastor Billy— And I said, hey, I want you kids to go find Pastor Billy. And you're like, cool. Um, I'm going to go find Pastor Billy. And I'm like, okay, let me describe Pastor Billy to you. He's five foot two. Um, He's he's African-American. And he weighs 350 pounds. Go find Pastor Billy. Five foot two, African-American, 350 pounds. Are you going to find 
Pastor Billy. Pastor Billy is not five foot two. Pastor Billy is not African American. He's Irish. Pastor Billy is not 350 pounds. If you look for the right name with the wrong description, you're not going to find the person you're looking for. Who exactly are the Pharisees and priests looking for when they're looking for Jesus? Are they looking for a savior or are they looking for a sinner? They're looking for a sinner. They want to arrest him. They want to kill him. They're looking for someone who is the cause of their problems. They're looking for someone who is the wrong person who needs to be eliminated. Are they going to find that person? No. They can't find him. You will seek me, but you're not really seeking me. You're seeking something totally different. So you can't find me. Not only that, you can't come. Where I am going, where I am, you cannot come. Again, this goes back to John 3 when Jesus talked to Nicodemus. Not only can you not see the kingdom of God, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. John 3 verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus' prophetic word is to tell the Pharisees and the priests their reality. Now, this is a difficult reality. What he's telling them is that you are blind, that you are separated from me. You cannot find me. You cannot see me. You cannot go to where I am. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's a harsh reality. The question is, is that the reality for only the Pharisees and the priests? No, that's the reality for all of humanity. Kids, why, why can't we go and be with Jesus? Why can't we seek Jesus and find him? Because of sin. Because God is holy. Because he is separated from us. God created us, and yet we rebelled against him. We turned against him. And the punishment for that was death and separation. That we are not holy. We are separated from God. And the, that means that we cannot see him. We cannot enter the kingdom of God. We're separated from him. This is our reality. They can't find him. And the reason they can't find him is they're seeking the wrong thing. And here's a principle for all of us. It matters what Jesus you seek. It's not enough to just seek Jesus. It's not enough to just seek a Savior if you're separating those two things out. You need to seek Jesus, the Savior, there are many people who are seeking Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of Scripture. It's not Jesus who is the Savior. Likewise, there are many people who are seeking a Savior, but it's not Jesus. Those two truths need to come together. The reason the Pharisees could not find him is they're seeking a Savior, but it's not Jesus. Jesus. 
And the reason they can't find Jesus is because they're seeking Jesus, but they're seeking him as a sinner. We need to seek Jesus as our Savior. All, all over the place, you're going to find people who are doing one of the two things. Either they're placing their trust in other things to save them, or they're putting their trust in a Jesus, but not Jesus the Christ, not Jesus of Scripture. How often do we see this in progressive Christianity? How often do we see this in deconstructionism? If you create a Jesus according to your own image, you will never find salvation. So Jesus tells them this prophetic word. He gives them this reality. Now here's the question. What's Jesus' tone in all of this? What's the tone that Jesus has? See, I think we read this a lot of times as, as judgmental, maybe mocking. Hey, you, you know, you're sending all these people to arrest me. You're going to seek me, but you can't find me. Or is it maybe compassionate? See, what Jesus is doing is he's exposing their need. He's not rubbing it in their face. He's not mocking them. He is filled with compassion to show them what they truly need. See, if, 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 remember, if, if we were going back and, and I went back and I told you, you need to find Pastor Billy because you're sick and you need the right antidote and Pastor Billy has it for you. He has what you need in order to get better. And I know that you have a completely wrong description of who Pastor Billy is. Is it right for me to just let you go with that description, knowing that if you never find him, you're going to die? No. What I need to do is say, you've got the wrong description. You look for who the description that you're looking for, you're never going to find him. Jesus, full of compassion, tells them their problem. But they don't see it because they also have a perspective problem. Look at verse 35 through 36. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Again, Jesus is talking on one level. They are hearing on another level. They don't have Christ's perspective. They have an earthly perspective. They don't understand. They don't see it. They're confused. Again, this is what John said, uh, what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Truly, truly, unless one is born of, of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter. He cannot see. We can understand their confusion, though, because sometimes we are confused by these verses in the same way. We read these verses that Jesus said, you cannot find me, you, you will seek, you will not find me, and we're like, wait a second, I know where this story ends. They are going to find him. They are going to arrest him. They are going to kill him. It seems to me like they are going to do all the things that, they, that Jesus just said they can't do. But again, that's an earthly perspective. Because will they find Jesus in the sense of killing him? Yes. Will they find Jesus in the sense of their Savior? No.
They are confused, and it leads to their disbelief. They don't understand what he's saying. But Jesus' perspective is not earthly. Jesus' perspective is divine. This is what we saw last week in verse 16. My teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. Jesus has a divine perspective. He is speaking truth of this is your reality. This is the prophetic word. You keep looking for the person, the Savior you're looking for. You keep on looking for the Jesus that's a sinner. You're never going to find him. The irony, though, in the passage is that all of the things that they ask, is this what Jesus is doing? Does this, is this what he means? Ironically, Jesus ends up doing those things as well. Because they say, what, does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Yes. Jesus will go into the dispersion and teach the Greeks. His word will go out among the nations and those people will hear him, and those people will find him. The irony of them asking and saying, where, where can he go that we can't find him? Is he going to go so far there that we can't find them? Yes, he will go to those places, and those places will find him. I guess the question for us is, do you think you can find Jesus your own way see these these jews all have this earthly perspective and they're they're questioning like where could this man go that we couldn't find him there's nowhere he can hide that we couldn't go after him but the reality jesus words will prove true they can't find him if they are relying on earthly perspective if they are seeking anyone who is not jesus christ the savior but with that reality then if our condition is separated from God, if, the, if our reality is we cannot find him, that we cannot go to him, where is the hope for us? What hope do we have? The hope comes in the promise that we're going to see next. Now, I'm just going to give a, a bit of a warning. We're going to spend most of our time here. We are going to go through the, to the end of the chapter, but most of our time is going to be spent in these three verses. Kids, if you uh, go ahead, you can uh, fill out the other picture that is the verse, uh, John 7, 38 through 39. Let's read, uh, starting in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Like I said, we're going to spend a little bit more time on this section, but before we jump into it, I need to explain a little bit about the setting. Last week, we saw that the Jews, the reason Jesus is in Jerusalem is there is a festival happening right now. There's a celebration. Who remembers what, the, what festival is happening right now? The Feast of Booths. And we talked about this last week, that it's very similar to how we do our own Thanksgiving, that they remember how God has taken care of their ancestors, 
They thank God for the harvest and his sustenance in the the present time over the last year. It's also looking forward in thankfulness and prayer for the following year. But one of the things that happened at this feast, as it says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, one of the things that happened every day is that the priest would go to a well, they would draw out water, and they would pour it out before the altar, and it was to symbolize three things. And it was this theatrical element that everyone knew what was happening. The first reason was to remember the story we started our message with. What did God do to save his people in the desert? He gave them water. And so as the priest would pour out the water, they would remember how God sustained their people in, um, out of captivity by giving them water. The second thing, though, that they would remember is how God had sustained them over the last year by giving them rain so that they could have a harvest. The third thing, though, was a prayer for the next year that God would once again bring rain to them. So this image of water, the living water, the water that is needed for them to have life, has been before them each of the days of the feast. And after they've seen this, Jesus stands up and cries out, If anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Jesus is making a connection. Jesus is making a claim. I am the living water. You are all here giving thanks to God and praying for water that will sustain you for another year. I am the water that will sustain you to eternal life. Again, we see when we talked earlier that Jesus made the the prophetic word to them not out of judgment, not out of to, to rub their face in the dirt, but out of compassion. We can see that here, Jesus stood up and cried out. It's a word that means he cried full of emotion. He knows their problem. And he wants to save them. If anyone thirsts, what is this thirst. We're going to break this down bit by bit. It's a thirst for God. It's a thirst for truth, for satisfaction, for purpose, for true worship, for meaning, for redemption, for salvation. It's a thirst for things to be fixed that sin broke. It's a thirst for redemption. And Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, This is our reality. We need to be fixed. If you thirst, come to me. There's an Old Testament allusion here. So if you have your Bible, open up to Isaiah 55. Keep your finger in Isaiah 55 because we're going to be making a few different references as we go to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 verse 1 says this, Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Come, everyone who thirsts. This is what Jesus is saying. Come, all who thirst, come to me. There's a universal application for us here. The reality is that everyone thirsts. 
Everyone is looking for satisfaction. This is an open invitation. If we thirst, which we all do, then what should we do? Let him come to me and drink. What is Jesus claiming? Jesus is claiming that satisfaction is found in him. I am what you need. Jesus is claiming to be the Savior, the Messiah. He is claiming to be the only one that can satisfy what has been broken. But there's a question that we all have here. How can we come? Jesus just said a few verses earlier, you will seek and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. He just told them they cannot come. And now on the next verses, he says, come to me. How is this possible? How can we do something? It seems like this is contradictory. Well, the reason that they couldn't come is, as we've already seen, because of what they were looking for. They were not looking for Christ the Savior. They were looking for Christ the sinner. We can come to Christ when we look for him as the Savior, but there's another reason we can come. This is the greater reason, though, of how we can truly come, because Christ invited you. If God does not invite you into a relationship with him, you can never come. You cannot come to Christ if he does not invite you. There is nothing we can do to reach that. Remember, we are separated. It's because of our sin that there is a wall, there is a barrier that we cannot go to where Christ is unless he invites us. So how do we do that? What does it look like to come to Jesus and drink? He says it next, whoever believes in me. We come to Jesus when we believe in him. Believe in him as your savior. This is the second time that we've already seen in this passage, uh, in, in John, where John has linked coming to Jesus with believing in Jesus. In John 6, verse 35, it says this, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What does this belief look like? What does it look like to believe in him, to come to him? It looks like repentance. Stop seeking the wrong Savior. Stop seeking Jesus, the sinner. You will never find that. Repent from what you were looking for in, uh, for salvation. Turn away from that. Instead, seek Jesus, the Savior. Repent and have faith. Believe in Jesus to be your Savior. Believe in Jesus to be my Savior. This is our hope. There is a way to Jesus. But do not forget the reality that Jesus gave us. Do not forget his prophetic word because this is urgent. If you don't come to Jesus after his invitation, if you do not thirst for him, if you do not believe in him, then your condition is still the prophetic word. Isaiah 55, 6 through 7. Again, if you have it already open, look at verses 6 through 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. 
Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Jesus has already told them, I am going to him who sent me. Jesus is leaving. Seek him while he can be found. For us, that means while there is still breath in your body, seek him now. It's urgent. Why? Why should we do that? Because God didn't send Jesus for, any, for just no reason. It wasn't just on a whim. God had a purpose. Jesus came with a plan. Again, look at verse uh, 10 in Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, 10. For as the rain and the snow comes down from heaven and, does, and do not return there but, uh, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Jesus is that word. Jesus is the word who has come to us. Jesus does accomplish his purpose, and his purpose is to give life to those who come and believe. The result is life. Whoever believes in me, as the, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus takes those who are dying of thirst and transforms their hearts into rivers of living water. Jesus is offering satisfaction. Isaiah 58, 11 says, And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. Satisfaction is possible, but only through Christ. Because Jesus is not promising regular water. It's the same water he promised to the woman at the well. In John 3, 13, it says, Everyone who drinks of this water, this regular water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So what is this water? What is this miraculous, unending, always satisfying, life-giving water? The author John adds a little footnote and explains that it is the Spirit. Now this he said about the Spirit, and we're talking about the Holy Spirit. How does Jesus satisfy our thirst? By giving the Spirit. We are satisfied by having the Holy Spirit in us. We could spend the rest of our lives reflecting on this truth and still not understand the immensity of this promise. Do you, do you understand the difference? If we remember the prophetic word, the reality of our condition, that we are separated from God, that we are sinners, that we are unholy, and yet now here Christ is saying, I will give you my spirit to dwell within you, those two truths are so far apart. And it is only possible because of the work of Christ. 
How is it that uh, we who are unholy, who we are separated, who we are dirty with sin, how is it that now we could have the living God abiding within us? It is only because of what Christ did. But again, this was an Old Testament promise. Ezekiel 36, verse 25 through 27 Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There is a beautiful imagery here. Throughout the festival, the people have been reminded of how God gave water from a stone so that they might not die. He did that through Moses. Moses struck the rock and out of the rock came water. What is the problem that Ezekiel already points to of all of humanity? We have hearts of Stone. But what does Jesus promise here? That from their hearts will come streams of living water. Out of our hearts of stone, God brought forth rivers of living water. That's beautiful. Out of our hearts of stone, God brought forth rivers of living water because he put his, his spirit in us. This gift, though, this life, this satisfaction is only for those who believe in Jesus. Look what the verse says. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. It is only those who believe that will receive the Spirit. Only those who place their faith, only those who repent from their own salvation and place their faith in Jesus have their hearts of stone transformed into a heart of flesh. They are the only ones who will receive the Spirit and have rivers of living water flowing from their hearts. This is only possible through Jesus. And this is something that Jesus is showing that is totally different. Because in the Old Testament, the, the Holy Spirit was not given the way he is now. Back in, in John 1, uh, it says that Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is something new. That after Christ was glorified, that we who have placed our faith in Jesus have access to the Spirit. But not just for a time for a spirit that will remain. How, again, is this possible? How do we reconcile the reality of us being unholy, separated from God, and yet now having the living God in us? It's because of what it says, because Jesus was glorified. What was that? It was Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. That's the only way. Because you can't have a holy God living in unholy people unless Christ paid the price. But he did. 
Christ died in our place. He paid the price that we needed to pay, and he conquered death so that now we are redeemed. We are declared righteous. Now a holy God can dwell within us. Now there can be streams of living water. This is why he can give us the Spirit. But here's a question for you. Why are we given the Spirit? Why does Christ, why is this the process? Why does Christ give us the Spirit? John is the gospel that deals with the Holy Spirit more than any other gospel. We've already seen it some, but as we progress, we're going to see it more and more. But here's a few things. We need the Spirit because without the Spirit, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. Remember, he told the the Pharisees and priests, you cannot come. He told Nicodemus, you cannot enter. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. But Christ gives us the Spirit so that we can enter. We need the Spirit because the Spirit gives life. John 6, verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. We need the spirit in order to have this life. But we also see that the spirit is our helper in the mission. John 15 verse 26 says, When the spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Now, now why do I bring up this mission here? Because look back at what, the, what Jesus promises. Out of his heart, out of the heart of those who believe, will flow rivers of living water. Well, here's a question. Why is there living water flowing out of our hearts? What's Jesus saying that there should be living water flowing from our hearts? It would make more sense if it was, well, out of my heart, out of Christ's heart will flow rivers of living water. But Jesus says here, out of his heart, the one who believes will flow rivers of living water. Why? Because we are ambassadors of the kingdom. We are the ones who are meant to show the world that satisfaction can be found. Please understand, that does not mean that we then become the source of living water. Everyone still needs to do what Christ says. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Not to you, not to us. It's not that we are the source of living water for salvation for other people, but we are the evidence. We can show that true satisfaction can be found, that there is a way to reconcile the reality with the possibility. This is what Jesus ultimately sends them. In John 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what gives us and allows us to be part of this mission. So here's a question for you. Is there a river of living water flowing from your heart? The answer might be no, because maybe you haven't come, maybe you haven't believed. In which case, do so now. It's urgent. This is your only hope. But maybe you have come, maybe you have believed, but maybe the river has stopped flowing and has become a little stagnant. 
An illustration that many people use is, is looking at the Sea of Galilee versus the Dead Sea. Both of them, the source of water for the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea is the Mediterranean Sea. And yet in one of them, there is abundant life where people are fishing and doing all of those things, and yet in the other, it is dead. Do you know what the difference is between them? One has water flowing out of it. The other one is a dead end. Are you, is your heart flowing living water, or has it become stagnant? The Jews, the Pharisees, looked at Jesus and said, all of the blessing should come to us and then stop. That's why Jesus called them, you are whitewashed tombs. You look clean on the outside, but inside you are full of dead, dry bones. We have a mission here that if we have been given the Spirit, we should have rivers of living water flowing through us. Is that the case? Or has it become stagnant? Stagnant water stinks. The other question, though, is are you drinking from the source? Come to me and drink. Are you continually going back to the clean, living water, which is Christ? Or has the river become polluted because you are looking for other things to satisfy you? When other people look at you, the water that's flowing out from you, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, what do they see? Do they see clean, living water which comes from the Spirit because you are drinking from the source which is Christ? Or do they see polluted water because it has been gone to other sources of satisfaction? Seek Jesus as your Savior, for only his Spirit will satisfy your thirst. All right, we're going to do the last part here, and we're going to uh, go quickly through this, this element. Because what Jesus does now is he's going to offer up some proof, some evidence that what he has said is true. Because what we're going to see is both that the people and the priests and, and Pharisees don't do what Jesus has said. And therefore, they are still far. They cannot find him. Verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Again, some people get it, but others don't. Some say, this is the Christ, but others say, this is the prophet. The problem is that they look and say, well, Jesus is still a good thing. And the reality is Jesus is the prophet. But their understanding is that the prophet was different from the Messiah. But Jesus is, no, the prophet is the Messiah. And yet they see them as separate. But even though they see Jesus as a good thing, as an important thing, they don't see him as the Savior. So they do not find him. Again, they demonstrate their earthly perspective. It talks about all the things that they question. Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said they're going to truth, but they have an earthly perspective? Here's the irony. Jesus did come from Bethlehem. Jesus did come from David. And yet they're not willing to trust Jesus. They're only trusting in their own perspective. Both times the people bring up an argument against Jesus, they were right and didn't even know it. Will he go to the dispersion and teach the Greeks? Yes, his word will go out and teach them. 
Isn't Christ supposed to come from Bethlehem? Yes, and he did. If you think that you can rely on your human perspective and still find salvation, you're wrong. You cannot trust an earthly perspective to come to the right conclusion. You must place your faith in Christ. Seek Jesus as your Savior, for only the Spirit will satisfy your thirst. But now look at the priests and Pharisees. We go back to how the passage opened up with this group of people. The officers then came to the chief priests, the officers that they had sent to arrest him, and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of, or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. The officers won't arrest him. They say, no one speaks like this man. Like, do you see the irony that the, the leaders, the religious leaders are telling them, hey, this is what you need to do? And even these officers can see there's something different about this man. No one has spoken like this man. Of course no one has spoken like this man. This is the word who took on flesh. This is the word who was with God. The word who was God. But notice the disdain the priests and Pharisees treat the others with. Have you been led astray? Have you been deceived? It's the same word that earlier in our passage that some say, this is a good man, and others said, no, he is leading people astray. The leading people astray is the same word here as being deceived. No, he is leading. Have you also been led astray? They are judging these men for not arresting the Son of God. And what, what, what is their confidence? Why aren't they led astray? How do they know other people are led astray but not them? What is their great support for knowing they are right? Only themselves. Notice their first argument. No authorities or Pharisees have believed. This crowd does not know the law and therefore is accursed. But we know the law. And you've got to love the irony of what, John, what happens right next. There are two arguments. All of us agree about this. We know the law. They don't. Look what happens next. Does, uh, and Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They just said that the leaders are all in agreement, and then the teacher of Israel stands up and says, Wait a second. I'm not so sure about this. They just said this crowd who is accursed because they do not know the law, Nicodemus then says, does not our law tell us? Do you see the irony that all of these things, they're putting up all of these barriers to refuse to receive Christ? Why? Why are they so indignant? Why are they so sure that they do not want to receive Christ? Because coming to Christ means confronting your own fallenness. What did Jesus say earlier in our passage? The world loves you, but the world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. For the Pharisees to come to Christ, they must then receive the testimony of Christ that their works are evil. 
and they don't want to do that. It's much easier to call Christ a sinner than themselves sinners. And so what is their great argument against Nicodemus? Because Nicodemus brings up some valid points, and they're going to come back to Nicodemus. Do they accept what Nicodemus says? All right, Nicodemus, you're right. Let's, let's hear this guy Jesus. Let's give him a chance. No, they don't do that. Do they have then great, uh, a great refutation against what he says? Do they refute him? No. They do a straw man. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. You're, the only reason you would like him is if you came from the same place. Do you, again, the irony, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee? Uh, sorry, there is a prophet that arises from Galilee. Jonah. Jonah came from Galilee. See, they're not even using Scripture. They are so intent to prove that Christ is not who he says he is that they completely go against him. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. We don't, so many don't come to Christ because they don't want to confront the reality of their condition. But you have to understand Christ's prophetic word. If you do not come to him based on his invitation, you will never find him. You will never find satisfaction. Kids, we started talking about water, that water gives life. And Christ offers living water to us. Without this water, there is no life. Without Christ, we cannot have this life. Christ gives us the Spirit. We must seek Jesus as our only Savior, for only His Spirit will satisfy our thirst. As the worship team comes up, I just want to leave you with a few questions. Are you seeking Christ the Savior, or are you seeking a different Christ? You must seek Christ the Savior. If you're looking for a Jesus who's not the Savior, you're not going to find him. If you're looking for a Savior who's not Christ, you're not going to find him. What source are you drinking from to satisfy your th thirst? Are you going to Christ to satisfy your thirst so that the streams of living water remain clean? Is there a river of living water flowing from your heart? that you have a mission to show others the evidence of that there is satisfaction, or has the river become stagnant? Seek Jesus as your Savior, for only the Spirit will satisfy your thirst.